I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into our first session. Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us as a light and as a guardrail for our lives. You tell us that we ought to love your word, to live by it, and to walk with it all the days of our life so that we might know you and so that we might commune with you and fellowship with you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in revealing to us your son. We pray that in our time together tonight, we would not just know more about different theological ideas, but we would know you better, we would know Christ better, and so that we can love and serve one another well and ultimately be obedient to your word. We pray this together in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so session one uh, for our discipleship night is going to be essentially framing the conversation. And so I have titled this one Suspicious Semantics. Um, And that is because if you get into the topic of progressive Christianity, you'll realize very quickly that it's a hard topic to clearly define. And, and that's not just a problem, by the way, for those who would say we're progressive Christians. It's not, in some cases, they're trying to be intentionally hard to define. That's true. But it's also hard to define because many times Christians who aren't progressive Christians will use the same terminology, will, will say all the same words, use the same concepts and ideas. But the, the terms themselves, how you define them and what you mean when you say those things are, are totally different. So for instance... Uh, Someone who would be, let's say, a very progressive Christian might say, I believe in the inspiration of scripture. And a conservative Christian would hear that and they would say, I believe that too. I hear that and I believe that too. And then if you press, you know, any further into that conversation, you realize very quickly, although you're saying the same thing, you're not talking about the same thing. So uh, the the whole first session tonight is just going to be trying to pin down essentially the, the core as best as I can describe it, of what progressive Christianity is as a movement or as a way of thinking. And that's for two reasons. One, because clarity is helpful for engaging ideas, uh, but also because there's widespread confusion among conservative Christians uh, about like what are even big enough ideas to make someone a progressive Christian. For instance, just because someone doesn't agree with you lockstep on every single doctrinal belief that you hold, does not make them a progressive Christian. So we're going to try tonight to do two things. Define it clearly and recognize that even with that clear definition, there's going to be some parts that we're still going to have to leave undefined uh, for the sake of our our time. So uh, I would like to start off then with a quote from Michael Kruger. He wrote a book, a little short book in 2019 called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And uh, in an interview that he did on why he wanted to write the book, Uh, He he said uh, these things uh, to the interviewer. Uh, He said, in the modern day, there is something very similar still happening. And we may not call it liberal Christianity today, although there is a sense in which that is true. But really, the term that is now used is progressive Christianity. It is a version of Christianity that sells itself as a valid option for Christians that on the surface looks a lot like the Christian worldview and may seem in the eyes of many people to be a more acceptable, a more likable, and really a more palatable version of the faith. But again, just as in previous days, when you really bore down into it, you realize there are some serious problems there. So one of the common questions that we have is, how do I spot progressive Christianity when it looks so much like true Christianity? So that's what we're going to be trying to define together tonight. 
And in, in uh, the book that uh, Michael Kruger writes, he tries to define at least some common tendencies that you'll observe and see in progressive Christianity, and you'll see them throughout our sessions tonight. Uh, so it won't just be located in this first one. But one of the hallmarks that Michael Kruger defines is a low view of Christ. So the Christ of progressive Christianity, might, we might say we believe in Jesus, we might say we believe in Christ, we might believe in his life and ministry and his death on the cross. But the view that is associated with all of those terms is very much different than what an Orthodox Christian would, would describe using all that same terminology. So it'll be a lower view of Christ, meaning a non-divine, non-cosmic Christ. The second uh, is it is primarily focused on moralism as opposed to salvation. Now, when we get into two of the later sessions, we'll talk about moralism is actually very important for Christianity. But progressive Christianity says moralism essentially in place of the salvation, redemption that we need as sinners before God. And then the last one that he tries to describe is that it downplays, progressive Christianity consistently downplays our fallenness as humans. Now, actually, the first hallmark and the third hallmark go together because if you downplay human fallenness, you will also downplay the Christ that is needed to rescue you from your human fallenness. We'll see this more clearly as we go on tonight. And then uh, there's, there's many authors who've written on this topic. Alyssa Childers is another author who's written on this topic. Um, her, her book is called Another Gospel. And she adds another criteria that I think is helpful, at least for our time tonight. And her criteria that she uses to define progressive Christianity, uh, how do you spot it, how do you observe it, um, is that progressive Christianity has a strong affirmation and almost a, a bolstering, uh, this is the holy grail of it. It is that uncertainty and skepticism are the, are the holy grail of progressive Christianity. So the more you say things like, I'm not sure, I'm still exploring, I'm looking into that, that is not, while that might initially seem like a noble thing to say, I'm, I'm being humble, I'm not sure about this thing, progressive Christianity takes that and basically makes that an ultimate thing so that you're always saying, I'm uncertain, I'm not sure, but you're never actually arriving at certain truth claims. And while that sounds humble, as Alyssa Childers observes and as others have observed, that's a problem when God says clear things about himself, and then you say, well, I'm not sure about that, because then you're not, you're not asserting yourself as an authority. It, well, you're not, you're not asserting yourself as humble, rather you're asserting yourself as an authority over the revelation of God. So, and we'll try to drill into that a little bit more. Probably the most historical author who's written on this uh, is a famous book by G. Gresham Machen uh, called Christianity and Liberalism. And in that book, he basically says, what we have is two things that bear the same name, liberal Christianity and Christianity, using the same terms, same definitions, but the problem is they're two actually different religions entirely. And so then we need to parse out what is different about them. So uh, tonight, I'm gonna recognize we're not gonna be able to get to everything. And so I think it's helpful for us to at least start uh, as we, in this opening session, with me at least showing you my cards in terms of what are my presuppositions, what are Max's and Tim's presuppositions as we teach through this topic, um, things that we're going to assume is true for the sake of discussion tonight, although you might still have questions about those things, we just don't have time to talk about them tonight. So you can ask questions about them, or uh, maybe we can talk about them in the future. But for tonight's sake, we're just going to assume them. Okay? So the first assumption uh, comes out of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. In fact, 
all of these do come out of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. So the first one that I'm assuming tonight is that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. A lot of questions you can ask in there. What defines Scripture? Um, in what way is it the word of God? We'll try to answer some of those. But I'm taking that as true, that, that God has revealed himself through Scripture, that this book is God's word. We confess, as all Christians do, that the Bible was inspired and written by human authors, but we deny that that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or heightened states of consciousness of any kind. So I'm saying that is a presupposition. I deny that the finitude of human writers, the fallenness of them, in any way threatened the revelation of God, making it false or introducing error into it. I believe that the revelation of God is bound up in the personal work of Christ, but far from removing the Old Testament from the canon, Christ actually affirms the Old Testament and commissions his apostles to write additional writings about what he teaches. So in that presupposition, I'm telling you, I, the words of Paul cannot be pitted against the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus can't be pitted against the words of Jeremiah. Because when Jesus is walking on the earth, he's saying, I affirm all these Old Testament prophets. And the only reason we know anything that Jesus said is because his apostles wrote things about him, Paul being one of them, James being one of them, Peter being one of them. So you can't pit the words of Paul up against Jesus because... When you have Jesus's words, they're Jesus's words as recorded by apostles, right? So the whole Bible is authoritative. You can't pit parts of it against each other. The God who made mankind in his image has used human language as a means of revelation. But that revelation, even though it's through a fallen thing like human language, does not make God unknowable. So God reveals himself to us in, in language but that does not mean he's unknowable because he's expansive and vast and we are finite. That is true, but it doesn't make him unknowable. And then the last presupposition I think is worth covering is that we deny that the witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from the scriptures. What that means is uh, whenever the Holy Spirit speaks, reveals things to a Christian, it is in accord with and in line with what the scripture has spoken as well. So if someone comes and says, well, God led me in this direction, and it's something that's against what Scripture has revealed, we would say that's actually not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works to speak the words of God and to affirm it to the hearts of a Christian. So uh, with that being said, um, let me outline at least some of the main differences you're going to see, uh, at least as we go through uh, our topics tonight, and some things you might want to ask questions about as well. So the, the primary difference, if you want to boil it down all the way to the core, between a progressive Christian and a conservative Christian um, is how you read the Bible. There's many things that will result from how you read the Bible, such as different views of Christ, different views of sin, different views of how God deals with our sin. But at the core of it, it's a different way of reading Scripture. It's rooted in a different view of inspiration. So a progressive Christian would say, I believe in inspiration, but they mean something very different from what a conservative Christian would say when they say inspiration. If I say inspiration, one of the things that I am affirming is that God's words have been passed down and his truth has been passed down to us. If a progressive Christian says inspiration, as, as one author who wrote on this topic says, uses the term, he, he says uh, Christians who wrote the Bible, the authors of the Bible, 
We're inspired in the same way that a pastor today might be inspired to write a sermon or that an artist today might be inspired to draw a picture or as a musician today might be inspired to write a song. That that is what the Bible means when it's talking about inspiration. So two very different concepts of what inspiration is. That view of inspiration leads to a different view of inerrancy because in that view of inspiration, human error is introduced into the revelation of God. And the result, the result of how you read scripture is different because Inerrancy, if, it's, if it goes away, so too does the plain understanding of God's word. And so the result, the concluding result of that, is that the progress of history, meaning today as we stand in the 21st century, uh, we have new and better and more profound insights than anyone before us could have possibly had. So that's where progressive Christianity gets its name from seeing the progress of human advancement and achievement over the last 2,000 years, we say that today's observations, even if they're only 20 years old, only five years old, are profoundly more insightful than anything that has come before it. Such that when we get to issues like in our next session, when we talk about um, human sexuality, according to the Bible, uh, one of the things that you realize is it doesn't bother progressive Christians that no one in church history before 50 years ago agreed with their position on human sexuality, because that's not a problem, right? Because human progress has made these achievements and advancements. Um, in, uh, in response to that, I just wanna offer a brief definition of Orthodox Christianity. Um, I don't think that uh, I'll be able to pin it all the way down to all the things that I believe or that I would teach from a pulpit on Sunday today. So what I'm gonna argue for as Orthodox Christianity is historical Nicene Christianity, meaning Christianity that we can trace all the way down to the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed affirms the following. It says that I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, who is maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. So God created the heavens and the earth. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and here's a key, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. It's a very high view of Christ. And what does Christ do? He, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So the work of Jesus Christ, as defined by Nicaea, is something I'm going to say, that's Orthodox Christianity. We can trace that back to as early as the third century, Christians believe these things. And so uh, anything that would differ from that, counter those claims, offer different solutions to the problems of sin that go outside of those bounds, I would say we could safely define as non-historical and therefore non-Orthodox Christianity and hence progressive Christianity. And so uh, it is with that, that we have to just, in, in brief terms, anchor this also in, a, in Scripture itself. And so for that, I just want to read out of the opening chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I think outlines a pretty clear definition of how God speaks and therefore how we should listen. You'll notice the author of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us. And so my submission about what a Christian should do, they should listen to God when he speaks. And so if God speaks to us about his son, about his son dealing with sin, about his son making purification for that sin, about his son being sent into the world for this purpose, we should take those claims seriously, not because it's the musings of theologians, but because it is the very words of God. So let me pray in closing. Our Father, we thank you for your word by whom you have revealed yourself to us. We pray in our time tonight together we would become good listeners and that we would submit ourselves to the authority of your word, calling into question not only our beliefs, but also our obedience and our practice of those beliefs. We pray these things together in your name. Amen.